Thanks for listening to the Redemption Hill podcast. As a community, we are learning the way of Jesus and serving our city. Redemption Hill is kind of different. We are a collective of micro churches that gather together on Sundays to grow and connect and worship. So don't wait anymore. Join us Sundays at Boise Friends Church in the gym at 10.30 a.m. and get connected to the community you need in this season of your life. All the details you need are at redemptionboise.org. Up next is the training and teaching time from this week's gathering. Stay tuned after the sermon for more info on how to get connected. Last week, we, uh, the title of the sermon was, What the Heck is a Priest? And I realized afterwards that that was the title that like, showed up on the, like that was just an internal title for my head, but it showed up on the screen. So last week, we talked about, What the Heck is a Priest? Um, and dove into the, the, the simplest ideas that priests are people who, who represent God's purpose in the world, and they create consecrated people and consecrated places that are set aside for God's presence to enter into the world. And this week we're going to be looking at one of the functions of a priest is to do this work of offering sacrifices. And that's weird, right? That's pretty weird, the sacrifice thing. Like if we, if we were to like rank all the weird things about the Bible and ancient history and Jesus, like the blood sacrifice thing has to be at the top top two or three. It's a weird deal um, because our culture has shifted so much over the last 2,000 years particularly. And over the last 1,000 years worldwide, there's been a shift away from blood sacrifice as a primary way of engaging with the spiritual realm. And last week, we talked a little bit about how that was from the very beginning, from Genesis chapter 3, we see a blood sacrifice to cover the sin of Adam and Eve as the beginning of God showing us that there's this intimate connection between the shame that we feel from sin and the cost of sin, meaning that death comes. And we'll talk about that today, but that's really what we're diving into. Last week we talked a little bit about how there's this, in our culture still, there's this, there's this divide between those who see themselves as priests or those who are professional clergy and those who are just regular old people and followers of Jesus. But what we see in, in Jesus' work on the cross and how the early church saw it is they wanted to completely smash the divide between priests and people, where God himself infused his priesthood into everyone who was a follower of Jesus. And our identities as followers of Jesus is this from the reading today from First Peter, a royal priesthood, a holy nation set apart for God's purpose. So, last week we recapped what's a priest. Here's some of the functions of the priest. They're mediators. So they go between God and people and people and God. Um, they are butchers. <laughs> like that's one of their primary functions that function in the sacrificial system is that when meat needed to be rendered, the, from the beginning, the butchers were the priests because they had been taught this special set of skills. And it's, they did not eat as much meat as you and I do. You and I eat somewhere between 15 and 25 pounds of meat per year. That's a lot. We eat more meat than anyone in all of human history. <laughs> we're really good at it. Um, but in the ancient world, 
meat was incredibly valuable and incredibly costly to prepare. And so the priests were the ones who had this special preparation in preparing meat. Um, they were ceremonial leaders, which means they had a particular way of preparing spaces and people and these sacrifices so that they would be within alignment of God's purpose and plan for his people to enter into his presence. Um, they, they were the primary ones who were to call the people to fulfill and apply God's plan and will to their lives. And so the priests would remind the people through the ceremonial act of this cleansing by blood, remind them what it's like to be God's people and to follow his way particularly. Um, they, they were the ones who read the word of God to the people. They were primarily, as a priestly class, they were the ones who knew how to take the word and to read it aloud to the people, and that was, that was one of their primary roles before Second Temple Judaism, when reading was even less less normal in 700 BC and before, they were the ones who did that work. They brought God's word. They represented people to God. Um, we see that the priest from the very early Melchizedek, he, he was this priestly king who was God's representative in the world. And we see that we are different kinds of people, um, that we, we as priests are not normal people, but we're set apart. That's what holy or consecrated means. It doesn't mean without sin. It doesn't mean perfect. Holy and consecrated both mean set apart for a particular purpose. They were only used for the things that they were meant for. Um, I was thinking today about, like, we don't have holy things or holy places in our world. We, we don't. You'd have a hard time thinking about a place that is a, uh, it's only used for one thing because we're very efficient people. We use a gym and we make it holy every, every weekend, right? We don't have particular sacred spaces. Um, my first church that I led in Watertown, Massachusetts, there was a man who, he came to Christ the first year we were there. He was in his 60s, and he told this story about how he used to break into the basement of that church building 30 years before, and how he thought that God was going to strike him dead because he was going in there and stealing snacks from this old church building. He thought that the, the place, the building itself had God's presence, and that when he entered in, and he illicitly entered into God's presence, that it would kill him. He, he came from a Catholic background, and that was a part of their system of thinking, but for us, that's a little weird. So what is it, like, what's a, what's a good analog for us today? Um, I was thinking about, like, one of the things that we have a particular use for is, like, our, our fine dinnerware, right? Do you guys have, do you guys still have that? It's, it's rest, less, it's less normal than it used to be, but my grandmother had a hutch, and that hutch was the china hutch. And we only took out the china, and we only took out the silver at Thanksgiving and Christmas. They had a very particular purpose. Um, we have, I was thinking a little bit about the, the one place that's a little bit mysterious and holy in our world is a surgical theater. You do not enter into a surgical theater unless you have been properly catechized into the way of an operating room. When you enter in, you go through this unique ritual of cleansing yourself. And then when you go inside, there's surgical instruments that are only used for that very particular purpose. You don't use your scalpel to cook, to 
cut your meat every night. If you did, it would be dull. And that's the point of a special or particular thing is that it has a particular purpose, only one place it's used. Holy would maybe think of as focused, not dulled by everyday activities. And so we keep our bodies holy because we have a special purpose. We don't keep our bodies holy and without sin because it makes us feel good, although it probably will bring more life to you. But we keep our bodies and our lives holy so that they're set apart for the particular purpose that God has given us. Because God wanted to connect sin with death right away, then righteousness brings life and connection with the Father. So when we have this purity of purpose rather than a purity of being, we become consecrated people. And where we go, we bring our consecrated presence, which is I'm a conduit of God's holiness and God's presence and God's power and God's love to a world that feels the deep need for God to show up. I don't know about you, but everywhere I look, I see people desperate to experience God's presence. And we then become a conduit for it. That's why we read from 1 Peter. It says, but you are not like that, for you are a chosen, priest, chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness and into his wonderful light. I think we have to break down this idea of what it means to be a priest because we have like our, our idea of it in the modern age. Now, we don't live in a very Catholic place, but when we think of priests, we probably think of Catholic priests because they're the last major group of priests in our world. And Catholic priests... Um, they know that all people are a part of this royal priesthood, but they think that they have a special role as priests mediating primarily the table as an expression of God's presence. And so they call themselves priests because they do this particular work of taking the body and blood of Christ and what they believe is transforming it into the actual body and blood of Christ and then giving it away to people so that they can experience the means of God's grace, which is his presence through the blood and the bread. And when we think of their particular role, it kind of makes our everyday priesthood seem not that important, right? Like if, if that's what it means to be a priest and I haven't been ordained to be able to present the elements, and that's why we don't believe that only pastors and professional Christians are allowed to give away the ordinances of God's grace. We believe that it's something that the people of God do day in and day out when we sit down and we break bread. When we sit down and we have our microchurches, we believe that's a place where God's presence abides, and so we don't need a particular priest. It is the priesthood of all believers that enter in. Why sacrifice? Why blood sacrifice? Why did, the, why did God institute this as a primary way that he would engage with his people for 1,500 years from Exodus, actually from all history, but 1,500 on, it became this cultic rite within the, um, within the tabernacle and then the temple and then the second temple. That was the way that God entered in and they worshiped. Why was the death of a pure animal 
this way of connecting with God. It seems weird to us because we, we really can't enter into the mind of someone from thousands of years ago. But what God was doing was he was making something tangible out of an intangible idea. So in Genesis, God tells them, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because you will die. And so what is Satan's primary lie? You disobeying God will not bring death. How could it be that you would eat from this tree and then you would die? Of course not. Look, it's good to taste. It's good to touch. It's good to smell. Why would God withhold this from you? And then, of course, they eat of it and they don't die immediately. They don't die immediately because that's wasn't, that wasn't the word that God used when he talked about death. When he said you will die, he said you would be separated. And what that means is that you are cut off from the very source of all life, God. When you sin, you're cut off. And so God gives this dramatic, enacted example where he kills an animal and prepares for them clothing out of their skin so that they can cover up their shame and be made right with the Father. And we t- we've talked a little bit about East versus West ideas of shame, but when we talk about being cut off, what we're talking about is you are... You, in a family, when you have shame, you're cast off so that your shame doesn't rub off on the family. That's still how it works in Eastern cultures. Your shame cannot spread to the family, so the only way for the family to atone for your sin is to cast you out. That's, this is the reason why they think that. It's the reason why we feel that in our families. Our families still do this, more often than we'd like to admit when people cross boundaries that we've set in our families to deal with the brokenness in their lives, we cast them out so that we will not be overcome by their brokenness. This is the way that it's always been. And so God wanted to give them a literal example to show them that their sin brings death. But it's a different kind of death. It's much like my iPad. It, is, it has life in it. It has 72% of life in it right now. And when I plugged it in, it has an infinite amount of life when it's plugged in. It will literally go until the processor spins enough times that it stops doing its primary purpose. It'll go and it'll go and it'll go. But as soon as I unplug it, there's a, I'm cut off from the source of life. And there's somewhere between four to eight hours, depending how much streaming video I use, that this thing will have life. And that's what God wanted to show them when they sinned and when they cut themselves off from the source of life, that there was a cost, that they were separated, and that the only way to be brought back was by innocent blood being shed for them, okay? Now, it still is not a natural set of ideas for us as Western modern thinkers, but God was giving them this this real-life example. And when we look at it, when we think about sin... Sin is a destructive force in our world that always brings death and disconnection. And God wants that to feel real. That's why we have pain and suffering in this world, is because if we sinned and there wasn't pain and suffering, we would live in this reality forever and not ever desire God. We would always desire injustice. We would always desire sin. We would always desire selfishness. When you look at it, something like a lie, it has this destructive force in the world. It destroys relationships. It threatens the very existence of families and communities. When we steal, 
It destroys our community. We can't live in a community where my stuff isn't safe from your use. When we commit adultery, it destroys our relationships and our families and our communities. It's this, if you've ever been in a community of people where there has been adultery, it literally will shake the very foundations of that people. That work itself brings death. Idolatry destroys our souls because we're serving darkness and we're not only separating ourselves from light, but we're joining in the destructive forces of this world. When we covet, it destroys our joy and it means it separates us from me from other people because I want what they have more than I want them. When we don't do Sabbath, by not taking Sabbath, it destroys our bodies and our relationships. When we curse God's name, it destroys our connection with life. When we dishonor our parents, it destroys our communities. And that's why in Genesis 3.21 it says, and the Lord made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. God himself takes the role of priest. He kills an animal, he prepares the skins, and then he covers up his people so that they can be made right. So they can enter back in without shame into the family of God. So that they would understand the undeniable connection between sin and death. And so we see, from the very beginning, developing this cultic, cultic just means ritual, that's all cultic means, but this cultic system of sacrifice given by God for these purposes, to cover our shame, to reconcile our relationship, to connect with sin, sin with death, so it reminds us of the disconnection between us and God, to create rhythms of thanksgiving and atonement and forgiveness and remembrance. So Leviticus is God saying, hey, you guys are forgetting. Constantly you're forgetting what I've called you to. You're forgetting that your sin causes death. You're forgetting that we're disconnected. And so he built into their calendar these two times primarily per year where they would gather together and remember what God had done and it was around the sacrifices. In the, excuse me, my voice is really dry. In the spring, it would be the Passover. The Passover was a remembrance that God himself protected them by innocent blood from death so that they could enter into becoming his promised people. In the spring, Passover is the primary way. In the fall, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, is the primary way that they would remember that their sin causes death. And so every year, twice a year, they wouldn't be able to forget that their sin causes death. And that they need these remembrances, these rhythms of thanksgiving and atonement. Atonement means that there, that there is a payment for sin. So the cost of sin is death, but until you pay it with atonement, that sin is a debt to you. And so every year they would have this time, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Um, there would be forgiveness where God himself would offer in exchange for sacrifice, forgiveness and new holiness. He would offer to his people access to him in the temple by forgiving their sin as they, as they offered this blood sacrifice. It would be a, a representation of God giving his people the cleanliness that they need to enter into his, into his presence. And so his whole high holy priest would then enter into his presence because it had been prepared. And then he also created this system of sacrifice so that his people would participate it, by participating in it, they would find unity with God and his people. And so a few times a year, they would gather to remember. 
They would gather to offer sacrifice for atonement and forgiveness. And then by them entering into those festivals, they would say, I'm with God. I'm with God's people. And so when you don't go to the festivals and when you don't enter in, you're saying, I'm separated from God and I'm separated from his people. And we're, we're diving into some old, old stuff. But lastly, I, I think that it was, it was meant to be a holy, incredible time. These feasts that were set aside were joyous occasions. They were feasts. Um, and I read this this week because I wanted to kind of get a sense of what it was like. Uh, I think of it as like an opportunity for a barbecue. We like holidays, right? There are opportunities to get together and cook meat. And I mean, I, I think of it as worshipful when I've got um, a massive brisket sitting on my smoker for 12 hours. And there's this delicious aroma that God himself smells. Like this is the aroma. God, God takes spices and meats and he cooks them and then the aroma fills his heavenly places. Barbecue is worship. Can I get an amen? But meat was only eaten a few times a year. For most people, they only had meat during these times and they would save up all year so that they could afford to take the animals that God had given them and then use them and consume them. Because animals provide all sorts of things before you butcher them. But as soon as you butcher them, they only have one purpose and it doesn't last very long. How long does meat last? Not very long. Even in my fridge, meat goes bad quicker than almost anything. It's a... Once you sacrifice something, it stops bringing life. That's part of what God's reminding us in here. Um, yeah, they, they would only have meat a few times a year, and this was a, a time for celebration. Not only that they got to have this delicious meat, but it was a time for them to celebrate that they were made right with the Father for the first time in the year. Um, unfortunately, the people pretty quickly saw it as merely ritual. They saw the times of Passover and Yom Kippur, these spring and fall festivals, as just things that they do because their people do it. And I know for some of you, that's, that's a lot of your life, is that you do things because people do them and because your people do them. You come to Sunday because you want to see your friends and you want your kids to have a thing that connects them with God and we show up because this is what we do as a people. We go to work, you go to church, and we do Bible reading, and we serve people, and we give, and we do communion, and we sing, because that's the ritual of our people. And so often, just like the Israelites, we forget the why. And so the work of worship is always reinfusing our actions with meaning. Because it's easy to slaughter a lamb and to have a, a lamb roast. It's easy to have a barbecue with your friends, but if we're missing out on this fact that God himself is consecrating us into the kind of holy conduits of his presence in the world, then everything that we do takes on new meaning. So when we gather on Sundays, it's not just merely a ritual, but it is itself the very presence of God in our lives. When we take communion, it's not just something we do week in and week out, but it's a remembrance that there was this once and for all sacrifice that took the power of sin away, that atoned for our sin, that made room between us and God, that covered our shame. This is where that belongs, and so weekly we do it to remember what God has done. 
We have to take the, the why and reinfuse it into everyday life. Even the priests in the ancient times, they, they were given this special role and they quickly saw it as a duty and it kind of even led them to resentment. Now the Levites who were charged with providing the temple services, they were not given land. Out of the 12 tribes, that were, the land was split up into these 13, 12, it, it was split 12 ways between 11 of the tribes, and then one was left out, and that was the Levites. The Levites themselves weren't given this portion of land to provide for their families because God had set them apart for a particular purpose as priests, as his representatives. They weren't given land, and so they saw the temple not just as a way for God to make his presence in the world, but they saw it as their source of revenue. And that's easy to do in our heads where God gives us something and then we twist it so that we see it not just for what it is, but for what we want it to be. That's why we see in Second Temple Judaism with Jesus that they had turned it into this money-making scheme to take all the pilgrims of the Israelites who came into Jerusalem and take their money and to use it to fund their lifestyles because they had not been given a portion of the land. And then they stopped consecrating themselves and when they stopped consecrating themselves for a particular purpose, the space of the temple stopped being consecrated because it was their presence alongside God's presence that made it a holy place. And now we are his royal priesthood. We don't come to the work as employees or servants. We're not just priests doing our duties. Now the Levites would have to show up like there are certain families that had like priestly duties, dead guy duties, that sort of thing. And they would, they would show up and they would do it for their time and then they would go home and they would take the spoils of their time gathering up all of the, the offerings, the 10% that God had set aside for them and they would take it home. And so many of us are still doing that spiritually where we're showing up and we're gathering all we can from God and then we're going home and we're just spending it on ourselves. But we're not servants and we're not employees of God. We're a part of his family. We're royal priests because we are a part of the great high priest's family. We're priests because we come from the line of Jesus, the king priest. We'll talk, we'll talk about that more throughout the series, but we have to move from just being merely butchers to following Jesus as participants in the sacrifice. So let's look at the work of priests and, and Jesus. Scripture identifies Jesus as our great high priest. In Hebrews 4 it says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So Jesus has taken this role of being the representative for all the people. Not only is he the sacrifice, but he is the high priest who goes into the holy place and offers his own blood as a living sacrifice. And the Old, the Old Testament whispered and hinted at the priestly office of Christ through a, a lot of different ways. So Aaron, Israel's first high priest, and the Levites, God instructs Aaron, for example, that he had to cleanse Israel of their sins through the protocols of the Days of Atonement. Now, Jesus himself didn't have to fulfill the protocols of the Day of Atonement because he himself was all purity. 
He didn't need to be purified. So on the Day of Atonement, they would take some blood of a, of a bull, and they would go in and they would offer a little bit of blood of the bull on the mercy seat. Jesus' blood did not need that bull sacrifice because he was already ceremonial, ceremonially clean. And then they would take some of the blood, and they would enter the Holy Holies, and they'd sprinkle it on the mercy seat. And God's blood, when it was shed on the cross in Jesus outside of the temple, when he was pierced in his side, his blood poured from him, and the curtain was torn. This is a picture of Jesus as the high priest offering a sacrifice outside of the temple so that God's holy presence could flow into all of creation. Do you see how Jesus is... Uh, there's this motif we talk about pretty often, but um, in the Old Testament and in the Israelite law, they saw their purity as a way to keep themselves from being tainted by the world. But Jesus' purity, when it enters into spaces, cleanses the place that it goes. And that's the, the great shift from the old law to the new law, is that when God enters into us, we become holy because we've encountered God. And then we become his presence that's holy in the world. And then God tells them, not just to sprinkle on the mercy seat, but take two scapegoats. Now we use the word scapegoat, and this is where it comes from. This is an ancient thing. They would take two goats, they would sacrifice one of them, and they'd sprinkle its blood on the altar as a blood sacrifice for sin. And then our sin is atoned through that blood. Just like in Genesis 1 when blood was shed so that we could, our, our, our shame could be covered. That's what happens. But the other one, they, they do this basic, basically a prayer that calls a curse down on the other goat and sends all of the, the sin of all of the people of Israel onto that goat. And then what do they do? They kick it out. They banish it from the people. All of a sudden, these, these pictures are starting to come together, right? That goat takes on for itself the shame of the people so that the people then could be reunited with God. And so Jesus himself on the cross says, Eloi, Eloi, Sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Himself taking on as the scapegoat the ritual of all of the sin of the people heaped on him, and then he being cursed and sent out from the Father's presence so that we might come into alignment with the Father. This goat was bearing all their iniquities and carrying them away from the people. As the Old Testament progressively unfolds God's plan of redemption, the prophets revealed that the Messiah himself would be this ultimate sacrifice. No longer would Israel look to the blood of bulls and goats, but to the blood of the Messiah, who would be pierced for our transgression, crushed for our iniquities, bear our grief, and carry our sorrows, as Isaiah 53 talks about the suffering servant. No longer would the scapegoat bear Israel's sins, but rather Jesus would. And the Lord laid on him the inequity of us all from Isaiah 53, 6. The Messiah would both be sacrificed and priest. And then in Hebrews 9 it says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, the tabernacle, not made with hands, but not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing for us an eternal redemption. Now, 
here's some bad news. This is the kind of priest we're called to be too. You see how Jesus himself is not just the priest, but he is himself the sacrifice? I got really good and bad news. We're supposed to do the same thing. Like Jesus, we have become a royal priesthood, and we follow in the work of our one and only high priest, and we go from being butchers to being butchers and lambs. A living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to the Lord. That's what he means by a living sacrifice. We take our lives, we take on the sin and brokenness of this world, and then we become ourselves, our lives, a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to the Father. Our lives become an an aroma. Now, our lives become the, the barbecue that God wants to smell, that aroma that he's looking for. Our lives are consecrated and set apart to mediate between God and people and people and God. Our lives are given as a ransom so that others might be brought near to God. We bear other shame so that they might be reconciled to God. That's really hard news because to follow Jesus is to follow him to the cross. In his baptism, in Mark chapter One, we see God anoints Jesus with the Holy Spirit to carry out this particular office of prophet, priest, and king. And likewise, we who are in union with Christ, we talked a lot in um, Ephesians about being in Christ. We share in the same anointing through Christ pouring out of the Spirit upon the church. Through Christ's priestly office, all believers who are united to him we become a part of his anointing. There's, there's two texts from Scripture that teach us this truth. We, we've talked about 1 Peter chapter 2, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And within the context of Peter's statement, he rests that the church identity as a royal priesthood in their union with Christ means that they participate in this. They've come to the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen and precious in the sight of God for this particular purpose. purpose. And as such, they become living stones. So we talked about that second metaphor of God himself building a temple out of his priests. So we then become the living stones. And, And I think that there's two things. It's not just an architectural vision of the temple, but what are the stones that we're that were laid on top of one another, but themselves, before a temple, God had them build altars out of stones in high places so that they could enter into God's presence. So we are the altar, and we are the temple that bring about God's presence in the world. They become a living stones to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Our priestly office finds its source and fount in Christ's priestly office. So, this is the priesthood. This work of priesthood is not individual. It's not just for our families, but it's for the sake of the world itself. Bringing God's presence, forgiveness, restoration, and life into a dead, dying world. Um, I, I was listening to a couple things from Bible Project this week, and Tim Mackey talks about um, in the ancient world, when you had an emperor, um, maybe of one, one of the like, ancient city-states, they would have an emperor. 
And that emperor would take over a city in another place. And what they would do is they would make themselves a statue of their likeness, and they'd put it in the center of the community. That's, that wasn't just vanity. It was vanity, but it wasn't just vanity. It was a literal statue, a likeness, an imago of that king that was in that place so that they knew who the reign and ruler was. And so when God talks about us as his creation bearing the Imago Dei, what he is saying is that we are little statues of the king. We are little representatives that he's put in places to remind the world that he is still ruler. This is God's plan to bring his presence into the world is us, our lives consecrated, our community set apart for God's purpose to bring life to bring hope, to give ourselves up for the world to experience God's presence. Okay. So now it's time to consecrate our lives. And I'm, I, I was wondering how sinful the Israelites felt as they prepared for Yom Kippur, like if it was like that week before, they're like trying to think of all the things that they need atonement for, and they were feeling like particularly sinful, you know? I don't know if you've ever had to take like an inventory of your broken life, but it's pretty harrowing. If, if like you had to sit down and write out all the sins from the last year to, to cast onto this goat, can you imagine all, all the weight that you would feel doing it? And that's when we ourselves do this work of experiencing the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. What we're doing is we're consecrating our bodies by casting our sin onto Christ and then joining in fellowship with God. That's the work of communion week in and week out is to keep short accounts with the Father, to remember our sin, to remember its cost, and then to live joyously in the new life that comes from his sacrifice for us. And then us, his people, becoming that sacrifice to the world around us. And so, instead of dealing with sin by avoiding it, <laughs> um, like, I think that there's kind of different ways of thinking about sin and holiness. And there's, like, the holiness movement itself taught that if you avoid sin, you will get God's presence. And they were really wrong about that. I don't know if you followed that movement, but they haven't produced much holiness or God's presence. But what happens when we pursue God's presence and we consecrate our lives to the particular purpose he's called us to, sin gets pushed out of our lives because it doesn't belong in God's presence. And so we don't wait to be holy to enter in. We enter in broken so that the power of God might come to life in us. And we believe that this holiness, this consecration comes by pursuing God and by being transformed in the way of Jesus. And so we follow Jesus to the cross as the great high priest and the perfect lamb who takes on the sin of the world. And so let's pray together. I'm going to invite the band to come forward. And we're, we don't have crappy little wafers today, so that's really exciting. You got the real thing. I don't, this doesn't look like wine, but we'll, we'll work on that piece, too. Um, oh, the, oh, we got wine? Okay, wine over there. 
really thin grape juice on this side. Um, we, is that marked? Okay, it's good. It's marked. Uh, okay, so we've got God's body himself. The sacrifice that is the truest, most pleasing aroma to the Father, which is he himself dying for his people. Lord God, we take this bread and we anoint it in your presence and say, bring your holiness to us as we participate in your sacrifice, as we follow you to the cross and take all of our sins and throw it on that scapegoat and let it, let it be the one who's cast off instead of us. And Lord God, we also take this cup like you did and say, this is your blood poured out so that we might have life, poured out so that we might keep ours, poured out so that your new life might enter in and transform us. Lord God, as we receive this, may it transform us into your way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'm gonna invite you to come forward and receive this. Um, maybe what we can do is this week as you come forward, um, take the elements and I'll be the first one up here and I will, I will say to you, this is the body of Christ broken for you. This is the blood of Christ shed for you. And then you stay, and as priests, you give that blessing to the next person, okay? So as you come forward, someone will give you the elements, or we're not, it's COVID, we're still not touching stuff, but take your own, and then bless it for the next person, saying this is the body of Christ broken for you, this is the blood of Christ shed for you. And then take it, and then the next person you do that for, because you are the priests. It's not something special that's given to me as something else. This is our work of giving away the work of Christ. Thanks for listening to our weekly podcast. Make sure to subscribe to get them in your podcast feed. You can find ways to connect with Redemption Hill at redemptionboise.org connection. Fill out the form for a free gift from us. We care about you and want to help you find your way back to God. Follow at Redemption Boise on Instagram for regular encouragement.